Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to This Empty Glass with Chef Ben. As you can imagine, I am Chef Ben. It has been 3,659 days since my last drink, alcohol having been my drug of choice during my active addiction. For those of you following along and doing math at home, yes, we will get to that number in a minute. First, I would like to make an announcement. I know it has been absurdly long since the last time I posted an episode, and I have promised multiple times that I would only record when I felt like I had something to say. I had learned something. I had encountered something. Uh, someone had spoken to me that prompted a thought. I wasn't going to produce content just to produce content. That's not the point of this. And I have continued to do work within sober communities. I hate to say mentoring people because it feels weird to say, but I guess that's the truth of it. I, my, my intention has been to be helpful to people. Not because there were a ton of people who were helpful to me, but because there were not a ton of people who were helpful to me. What I went through in the first couple of years of sobriety People shouldn't have to do that. And the resources for folks in our industry, folks in the restaurant industry, mm, they're getting better. They're not great. So I have remained active in a number of communities, mostly online, because we're very busy people. Uh, us, hospitality industry fucking monsters. And we can grab a text here. A Facebook message there, a post, but committing to going to a meeting or joining up with some folks for a thing or whatever can be outside of the range of our capabilities. Not that we don't want to. We work a lot, man. And when we're not working, we're fucking tired, right? I turned 45 this year. I have two children. I have a full-time job. Like, that shit is exhausting. And that's before you have to fight the voice in your head that wants you to get back into your active addiction. So it's been a very long time since I've recorded and the announcement that I want to make is this is the last episode of this particular show that I'm going to produce because I have gotten to a point where I don't know that I have that much more to say. I want to exist as a resource. I want to exist as a cheerleader. I want to exist as a shoulder. But I don't know that I have much more to say that I haven't already said. I have another show called In the Weeds with Ben Randall, which I have migrated all of the existing episodes of this show into that show's feed. So if you're looking for that, if you need more of that, it'll always be there. After I post this episode, I'm going to leave it up for three weeks, and then I'm going to take this entire show down. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to keep paying for hosting for this show as well if I'm canceling it. This episode will also end up in the in the weeds feed. I, <laughs> I do wonder how many people who listen to In the Weeds don't listen to the episodes of this show that show up in there. Because I'm a little more morose, right? In the Weeds is a more fun show on purpose, right? It is... It's industry-based, we fuck around, we have fun. This is just a more serious thing. And that does not contribute at all to why I'm stopping this show. But it is not... <laughs> that show's easier to do. It's as simple as that. And we'll get into that later on as well. But to go back to some math, ladies and gentlemen, it has been 3,659 days since my last drink, which means that a week ago was my 10-year sober anniversary. Yay. Fabulous. Big old pat on the shoulder for me. Here's the thing. I kind of wanted it to be a bigger deal, and I'm not saying that I wanted a fucking cake. I didn't want a cookie, I didn't want a medal, or a parade, or anything like that. I wanted it to be a bigger deal for me. And it wasn't. And I don't know wh why it wasn't. It just wasn't. I woke up on the morning of my 10-year anniversary of 
putting the bottle down, and I, it was the same as the day before. There was no catharsis. And that's hard, because we are goal-oriented creatures, you and me, restaurant industry folks, all of us. There is always a goal. You chop this onion so you can saute it, so you can put it on the thing, and you can put it on the plate, and it can go out to the customer. You put the steak on the grill so that you can turn it for your grill marks, so you can flip it, turn it again for your grill marks, put it on a plate, send it out to the customer. If you're a server, you got to get that fucking ranch to that table, that side of ranch, so that the table stops glaring at you. There's a goal to every single thing we do. And for a minute, getting to a year was my goal, and I did that, and that felt fucking great. Then I got to two years, and that felt fucking great. And then I got to five years. That felt really good. After five, I was just sort of chugging along. And I thought, well, when I get to ten, something will be different. And it's not. There's no goal here, ladies and gentlemen. God, sorry. I don't want to say this because I don't want it to be true. Because it... <laughs> it's a little depressing, to be honest. Um, because I still want to drink. I want to drink right now. It's been ten fucking years. I want to drink right now. And I can't, and I won't, and I'm not going to, and that's also, don't worry, I'm not canceling this show because I'm about to go out on a fucking bender or something. Like, now is the boring part. Now is the part where I know what work to do, I am doing the work, and it just kind of is now happening. There's kind of no goal. I, God, I hate to say this, but I think I heard this on the X-Files, because at one point Scully got cancer, and I am not comparing the struggle that someone goes through who has cancer to the struggle that someone like I go through with addiction. Those are wildly different things. I would never compare them. But I feel like this particular sentiment is the same. Scully gets cancer. She's talking to another woman in a hospital who also has cancer, who had cancer and it went away. The treatment worked. And then it came back. And that woman had considered herself a cancer survivor for a while until the cancer came back. And she says to Scully, I'll be a cancer survivor when I die of something else. The threat looms. She felt, or her character felt like the cancer was always like right there over her shoulder, just sort of waiting to pounce. And she was never going to be free of it, and she was never going to be safe. If that sounds familiar, that is what I am talking about. There's no goal. I'm not going to beat my addiction. You may. I have said this in the past. I will always hold this to be 100% true. There are as many different stories and paths and structures for recovery out there as there are people who are in recovery. It is different for everybody. So if someone comes up to you and tells you, oh, relapse isn't a part of recovery, you tell them to fuck off. Whatever it is you are doing in your recovery, that is your story. That is your process. It's all different for everybody. It's not wildly different. Step one is putting down the bottle. <laughs> No matter what they might say, actual step one is. You've all heard my thoughts about AA in the past. Once again, if it works for you, fucking great. Proud of you. And I, I, I love that for you. And a lot of times people say that shit all facetiously. I really do mean it. Whatever it is that works for you, do that thing. As long as it's not awful, right? As long as you're not like, look, I can stay sober as long as I can kill three puppies a day. That's fucked up. Don't do that. But whatever the structure, the process of your recovery is, it is as valid as anybody else's. And if they tell you that you have to do it a certain way, you don't have to join their cult. Simple as that. No matter which kind of a thing it is. Now, if a judge tells you you have to do certain things, you should listen to that. If there's like a legal component. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be beaten. It's going to be held back. It's going to be held away. It's going to be held at arm's length. I did not want to learn that that was the best I was going to get. <laughs> I really didn't want to learn that, and I did. I did learn that. And I'm in that spot now where I am with some of my energy all day, every day, holding my addiction at bay. 
I don't ever get to win, but I also don't have to lose, right? That's the balance, and it is it is a balance. I don't say this to discourage you. I don't say this to make you feel like it's not worth it, because while you are not in active addiction, while you have the strength and the wherewithal and the support to be able to hold it at arm's length, that in and of itself is a win. But you have to keep doing it. And that's exhausting. I'll talk more about support networks and such later on in the show, uh, which I kind of want to finish with. But I, I, I have to say something intensely personal that I'm not super comfortable saying. So I'm going to be real cagey and sort of vague about it. But it, it's it's worth <laughs> it's worth living in your head more than you want to. One of the first things you'll realize in early sobriety, and again, that's why I said that. What I went through in my first couple of years, people shouldn't have to go through. You have to meet yourself and spend a lot of time with yourself. And if you're anything like me, you kind of suck. And it's not fun. But it's not supposed to be. Because whatever you were doing in your active addiction, you were doing it to get away from something. Generally. In my case, I was kind of, hmm, my drinking was medicinal in as much as it's hard work that we do in the industry. This is not an excuse. This is just an explanation. I will never excuse the things that I did while I was drinking. I accept them. I'm responsible for them, but I'm not going to excuse them. However, I will explain them. It's hard. Our jobs are hard, man. Like, we're on our feet 10 hours a day. It's a long fucking time, right? And then that's a regular-ass shift. Somebody calls off, you're there 14. You got a wedding to do, you're there for 18 hours, right? Shit starts to hurt, man. Feet, knees, back, shoulders, the whole fucking deal, right? So initially drinking was social and it was medicinal. It was a way to have a good time and not hurt for a bit. Part of my brain must have known that I was doing something wrong because after a while I drank when I didn't, quote, need to. When I didn't hurt physically. When I wasn't exhausted. Alone. When I didn't have a social group that I needed to hang out with. At that point I turned a corner and I wasn't self-medicating for physical reasons. I was hiding from myself. Fine. Again, like I said kind of shitty so like hiding from me makes sense right when i became sober when i quit drinking i was shocked at how many of my friends stuck around (laughs) so maybe i'm being a little harsh on myself i don't know i don't have that outside perspective right i do have to live with this asshole in my head all day uh but could be i'm judging him a little harshly so the point of that is You have to spend time in your head. You have to spend time with yourself. Because if you don't get to the thing, you're never going to solve the thing. And maybe you'll never get to this weird purgatory zone that I'm in now. Where I'm holding my active addiction off at arm's length. And I have the strength to do that because I've kind of figured out where it all comes from. Have I dealt with it? Eh. Maybe. But identifying it is the real step one. Sometimes it'll be real obvious. If any of you drink or get high or whatever it is that's your drug of choice, and you can trace it right back to a super traumatic thing that happened in your life, I feel awful for you. And I'm very sorry that you had to go through whatever that thing was. Whatever it is you're doing to run from Examining that, dealing with it, is prolonging it. Just, I mean, that's just what that is, right? That's not drinking, doing drugs, and that sort of thing is not helping you. It's not healing. Uh, And I know, because I did that for a long time. So maybe it'll be easy for you to identify. Maybe you'll just be able to point to a day and a date and a time and say, this is a thing that happened. And from then on... I was a junkie. From then on, I was a drunk. From then on, I was a problem gambler. I don't know. Whatever it is. 
If so, great. Still sucks. But that's a good place to start. To identify the thing. Like, you gotta stop the bleeding. Right? You can't run away from the bleeding because you're the one doing it. So if you can point to a day, date, and time and say that's the thing, great. Get yourself some help. There is zero reason for you to do this by yourself. You could be an idiot, like me, and just contract into your own brain and spend 10 years doing it all yourself. There are probably, like, medical professional doctors, psychiatrists, therapists, that kind of shit, ways to do it that's way better and faster. <laughs> you know? Uh, I did not do that, and here I am a decade in making sincere discoveries. So maybe you can point to a day, date, and time. Great. Proud of you? There's still work to do after you've pointed to that day, date, and time. Sorry. That's the bad news. The good news is that you know the catalyst. You know the thing. You know the wound. Could be something a lot simpler. Could be something a lot more subtle. Could be something that you never, ever connected to your addiction. I always said that I primarily drank because it was cool to do so in my industry and I got sort of stuck into it. But there's a billion people in the industry who don't drink as much as I did, who don't use it as a crutch, who don't try to ruin their lives real hard with it, and they have the exact same experience as I do. So it had to be me. It had to be a me thing. So we're going to go way back. When I was a child, when I was very young, an adult who was in a, a position of authority in my life told me a thing that I've discovered in the last couple of years was inaccurate. Now, whether or not this was intentional, whether or not this was a lie, I don't know and I don't care. It was inaccurate. This inaccuracy served this authoritative adult in my life and did not serve me. So I was told when I was young that I was what is known as hypoglycemic, meaning if I did not eat food on a regular basis at regular intervals, the amount of soluble sugar in my bloodstream would drop and I would get hyperactive, easily angered, um, irrational, grumpy, all of those things that now the kids call hangry. Hangry is the new word for this. And there's all sorts of danger involved in this. Let me explain why. So I was told when I was very, very young by an adult who had a certain amount of authority over me, because I was a child, that I was hypoglycemic, meaning that if I didn't eat at regular intervals, I would get grumpy. It turns out, and again, I don't know if this was done on purpose. I don't think it was. I think it worked out great for this adult in relation to me. It turned out this inaccuracy about my medical health information served that adult very well because that adult, when that adult behaved in a way that would make me legitimately react in an angry sense. So let's say that adult just said some mean shit or did something that was just off or said that this adult had told me something when the adult had not and held me responsible for knowing the thing anyway and then yelled at me and then I yelled back, the adult would go, oh, you must be hungry. Remember, your, your blood sugar can't get too low. Here, have a snack. This accomplished two very distinct things. The first, well, three very distinct things. The first one was that adult was always off the hook for that adult's behavior. That person could behave any way they wanted to in relation to me. When I reacted to it in a way that, as I look back on it now, very valid reactions. That adult got to put the responsibility back on me, keeping in mind I was a fucking child. Saying that I had a medical condition that was making me overreact. So this adult was never at fault for these experiences. That's the first very distinct result of this inaccurate medical diagnosis. The second thing that happened is that I believed it. And I would allow my anger to, in fact, I encouraged my anger 
to take over a good chunk of my reactions to things because I did not think it was my fault. I thought if I got angry, it was because I was hypoglycemic and I couldn't help it. This allowed me, as an adult, to feel justified being more angry than I probably should have. I developed a justification for getting ridiculously angry at stuff that was not that big a fucking deal. Because when I was a child, I was told by someone who should have known better that I was hypoglycemic and I was not. So effect number one, this adult was off the hook for any of their behavior forever. Effect number two, I believed it and I became an angrier human because of it because I thought that it was not my fault that I was so angry. Result number three, let's talk about how I have, quote, struggled with my weight throughout my life. I have not struggled at fucking all. I'm kind of a fat guy. I've kind of enjoyed it, right? Like, why am I overweight? Because I eat a lot of food and I don't exercise that much outside of the, like, grueling 10 hours of labor I do pretty much every day, right? The interesting thing about that is that because I was told at a young age that when I felt bad, when I felt sad, angry, upset, anxious, any of that shit, it was tied directly to the amount of soluble sugar in my bloodstream and I needed to have a snack. I self-soothed through food because I was told I had to. It wasn't given to me as an option. It wasn't like I had one of those classic parents who would be constantly foisting food on me like you see in sitcoms. I was told I had to do this to myself to maintain my mood. And all of it is fictional. Every single step of the way it's fictional. I am not hypoglycemic. I had to get a physical for a health insurance thing like four or five years ago. Doctor says to me, do you have any medical issues I should be aware of? This is a new doctor to me. I'm sure he wasn't new. He was kind of old, like an old guy. I said, I used to have asthma, but it doesn't really bother me anymore. And I'm hypoglycemic. And he went, really? And I said, yeah, why? And he goes, well, that's really rare. How do you know you're hypoglycemic? And I said, well, this adult who was in a position of authority over me when I was a child told me I was. Fucking doctor laughed. Said, well, there's a test for that. So we're going to, I mean, we're doing a blood draw today anyway. We'll test for hypoglycemia. And I said, fucking great. And he was like, guess what? No, you're not. So I am 45 years old. And for 40 of those years, well, let's say 35 of those years, because it was probably five years ago. And I'm sure I was not told this before I was five years old. 35 years of my life. I believed that I had a medical condition that meant that when I was upset, not only was it not my fault that I would get wildly upset, but that the best way to treat it was with, like, fucking cupcakes. Cheese curds. Hot dog. You don't treat hypoglycemia, it turns out, with, like, carrot sticks. That would be a totally different ballgame. It's sugar. It's a blood sugar issue. Apple juice. Orange juice. Popsicle. That kind of shit. Now, why am I telling you all of this? So the way my brain works is I take pieces of information that look like they're completely disparate, like they're not connected to each other at all. And I sit them next to each other and I allow them to sort of interact to see if there are any connections anywhere, right? And I happen to be talking to one of my siblings about this exact adult who had some authority over us. And this sibling of mine had a similar story to tell. And there was a legit click in my head I heard it and it was loud and I thought I cannot say a single word right now to my sibling this is not the place this is not the time I have to sit on this and think about it if you listen to my other show you will know that I'm doing a thing right now and I have been for a couple of years where ladies and gentlemen think right now about the chef you know or the chef you are sorry maybe you're this guy who always has to have the answer right away and then you find out like 20 minutes later, that was the wrong fucking answer. Tends to be that chef is never the one that takes responsibility for being wrong, but that's a whole separate show. 
I have been working, because I've been that guy, so I've been working very hard for the last couple of years to not be the chef who has the answer now, but who has the correct answer in a little while. My staff now knows if I hold my finger up, what that means is you give me five minutes and I'm going to figure this out, whatever it is. could be anything as simple as where are the onions? What's wrong with the schedule? We have a catering tomorrow? Like it could be any number of things. But I don't make snap judgment decisions anymore. I've never worked in a kitchen like that. And that's a thing that I'm trying to do. And I can only do that as someone who has now trained myself to sit calmly and quietly and think about shit. And in a large part of that is due to being sober because my brain just works better these days. So I sat there for a minute staring at my sibling who must have thought that I had just had a stroke or something. And I thought this is important and I need to put this piece of information into my head right next to quote addictive personality which is a phrase that's always bothered me. Because if I had an addictive personality why can't I get addicted to cool shit like CrossFit or some sort of a thing that'll make me a shitload of money or something, right? Why is it that my addictive personality, quote unquote, is always negative, right? So I stuck that next to that. And I stuck that next to my active addiction and I stuck that piece of information next to a bunch of other things. And I finally figured out that if there is a root, no, not a root cause, that's the wrong term because I don't have a moment where I was like day date and time this thing happened and I started drinking after that I think I was primed to overuse alcohol as a self-soothing mechanism to calm me down to self-medicate against physical pain and it's because I was told if you're in a bad mood have a snack and my brain said this drink is the best fucking snack I've ever had in my life and I thought that's my new snack if I'm sad if I'm angry if I'm upset if I'm anxious I can have a drink and I will be better I used to know all the different sugar contents of drinks not that I like tracked them and shit but I sort of had an idea if I was super angry, maybe I'd have a cocktail. Something that had a sugary mixer in it. Realizing that. Because I also had to probe it a little bit. I had to prod that whole connection just to make sure that I wasn't trying to push off responsibility for my actions onto this adult who had some authority over me when I was a child. And that's not what I was doing. I am looking for explanations. I'm looking for answers. I'm looking for things that I can identify and say this is a thing I'm working toward or against. This is that thing. So as an experiment a couple of years ago, because if you're hypoglycemic, you can't do this shit, I started doing intermittent fasting. I would start eating at 11 o'clock in the morning, no earlier, and I would stop eating 7 p.m. No later, right? was totally fucking fine. Knowing that I wasn't going to get angry because I was hungry and that my emotions weren't going to be completely unhinged because I hadn't had a snack, I realized those things weren't happening to me. It was only because I thought I had the excuse of, oh, I'm hungry, so it's okay that I'm getting like volcanically angry, that I allowed that to happen. I'm in charge over here, right? When I realized that I had been subconsciously, unconsciously, what the fuck ever, using this false diagnosis of hypoglycemia as a crutch, as a way to go, look, being this angry ain't my fault. It's because I haven't had a bagel. Because I realized I was doing that, I was able to immediately stop it. In the last couple of years, I have become shockingly calmer than I was before and it's because I identified this thing that was inaccurate that was told to me 40 years ago that I just internalized now that whole long fucking story and I hope you're all still awake because there's way more show to record that whole long fucking story is to say it took me 10 years uh, it took me 
seven years to figure that out. Probably could have figured that shit out with professional help. But again, do what works for you and don't do what doesn't work for you. I am not the kind of person for whom therapy is going to work because I just don't trust it. Same thing with massages. I'm not a big fan of massages. I hear great things. But I'm never going to relax if I've got some stranger rubbing on me. That feels weird, right? But if therapy works for you, fucking giddy up. Do it. There's no reason not to if it works for you. Great. Happy for you. But it took me seven years to realize that this thing that is tremendously far removed from my active addiction kind of laid the groundwork for what would become my active addiction. I hate everything about that. Every fucking thing about that. I hate that it happened to me. I hate that I was told that thing that was inaccurate. I hate that I not only lived with that inaccuracy, but I kind of reveled in it, and I allowed myself to pretend like shit wasn't my fault when I was the one doing it because I had this made-up medical issue. And I hate that it took me seven years of being sober to figure that shit out. Hate all of it. Now, am I awesomer now? Of course I am. It's amazing. I can... I'm just more chill. It's amazing. So, figure that thing out. It may take you seven years. I hope it doesn't. It may take you therapy. If it does, and it works, great. Pay whatever they want. Get a job like the one I have that's got rad medical insurance and pay nothing. <laughs> There's no harm in sitting in your head and talking to your past self and figuring this shit out. It will be scary. It'll be boring. It'll be dumb. It'll be a lot of things. But if you can figure it out, I mean, no joke. Heard a physical click in my head and it was like flipping a light switch. Things were different from that. In fact, my sibling deserves an award of some sort like what i was talking about at the beginning cake cookie parade medal my sibling deserves that for doing nothing more than relating to me a completely unrelated story that made me think about that literal audible click in my head light switch flip i am now a different person which is amazing i realized not only did I not have an excuse for being an overly angry guy, I never had an excuse for being an overly angry guy. That hurt, and it's shameful, and it's kind of not my fault, but I'm an adult, so it is my fault. And so it took me a while to put that into practice. But here's the other thing. We all practiced to get real good at our addiction. You have to do the same thing in sobriety. You have to practice being a sober person. And it does get easier. Again, you don't win. There's no winning. There's no... And then you're done. But you do get better at it. You will. I, pro I can fucking promise you. You will get better at it. Hands, like, no question, no question, hands down, you will get better at it. Now, I have, I, this is, that's the first half of the show. I'm going to do another thing that I've been thinking about for a long time, and it's how I want to end this because it's cyclical a little bit. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the whole thing because I already talked earlier about how what I experienced in early sobriety, what I experienced in my first couple of years. Nobody should have to go through that. But if you do, trust me, I've been sober for 10 years. You can do it. You can get all the way through those first two years where you have no fucking idea what's going on. You can't sleep. Your weight is fluctuating wildly. You lose all of your friends. You have to try to figure out how to get new friends as an adult. And try to get new friends as an adult when you essentially don't have a resume for friends. Right? Like as an adult, you make friends by association right you quit drinking 
in the restaurant industry, you lose everybody you know. You have to quit your job and go work at another place, starting off as the sober guy. And you have to try to make – who the fuck makes friends as an adult, right? It is hard. I can't sugarcoat that for you. It's hard. can be easier. So I'm going to share with you some stuff that I learned in very early sobriety, and then I'm going to wrap this up because, again, beyond this, I don't have much to say unless – let me just say this. I'm around. I'm always available. And I like it that way. I, I, again, want to just be a resource. I want to have folks ask me questions, ask me for support, guidance, all of that kind of stuff. So after I've put this episode out, if you need to get a hold of me, this empty glass at gmail.com. I check that email daily. My Instagram, and I know that feels like a weird thing to say, but like everybody else in the world, I'm on Instagram constantly. Is Chef Ben Randall. Also, like you can just see cool shit that I make. Food. I grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and all kind of shit like that. If nothing else. Because I, I, I'm not bragging. I'm going to tell you this because it's been told to me. If nothing else, you will see. I will randomly post, here is a number of days that I've been sober. And I have had it told to me by people out in the community. This is helpful to me. That's where I put those things. I put it there because I'm proud of what I have done. Again, the fight goes on. I know that I am indebted to people who got sober before me, even though I didn't really have role models when I quit drinking. I have found some since, and my first two years were, were rough, but I did find some support in, in certain places. If I can be that for other people, starting out, and I know there are people in the industry right now who think you can't possibly be in the industry without drinking. That's not true. So if I can be that example, if I can just hold my hand up and be like, yeah, 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 you can do it like me. Wildly successful. Having a great fucking time here. I cook every day. It's awesome. I want to do that for everybody else. Not braggy. Not, hey, hey, look at me. More, look at what you can do. That's what I want to do. So that's where you'll be able to find me after I wrap this up. Let's talk early recovery. All right. Let's say... You decided to quit yesterday. You stumbled onto this podcast and you went to the most recent episode. Weird, but okay. In early recovery, you're going to encounter three types of people. This is wild generalizations, but stick with me. Each type of person is important to your recovery. But this is not to say that you have to keep everybody in your life. During recovery, you will lose people, like I just said. Some because of a change in your situation, like you have to quit your job. Some because they walk away from you. And some because you walk away from them. None of those partings will be easy, but it's crucial to know that this is going to happen. I, no sugarcoating, no illusions here, folks. Lots of things about early recovery are hard. Harder if you're doing it alone. I say from dumb experience. Group number one of the people you meet in early sobriety. People who support you. This can be anyone. You can find support among your existing friend circles, among family, coworkers, among virtual strangers you meet in online sobriety groups. I am raising my hand, but you can't see that. Support can come from any social pond you swim in, and the impulse will be to surround yourself with people who support you unconditionally, because that feels good. That's a trap. And you need to be wary of that. It's easy to listen only to the people who support you out loud early in your recovery. Because you can trick yourself into feeling like you've beaten your addiction very, very early. Very easily. Uh, this is likely not the case. The third group of people will let you know this is likely not the case. So while it's really important to seek out support and have a solid support network around you, it's equally important to make sure some part of that supportive group is also challenging you to stay on the path, to be honest about your recovery, to do the work. 
I found family. Family and people that I've known in the industry like forever to be the challenging ones. The supportive, challenging ones. Being surrounded by cheerleaders, the people who support you unconditionally, will make you feel like a champion, but you do still need to do the work. Supportive people who also challenge you are important in the way team members are important. Having people around you who are supportive is important simply because it feels good to know you're doing well. And these people will tell you that. This is a hugely motivating group of people, and the importance of that cannot be underestimated. Sometimes, the difference between drinking and not drinking is one pat on the shoulder, one thumbs up, one, you got this, bro. If you have people who will say and do those things for you, fucking great. Group number two, people who don't support you. People who don't support your recovery can come at you from all angles. Some will be malicious, some will think they're helping, like in their way, and some simply won't get it. The largest segment of this group are what I call the drinking buddies. The first couple of times you don't go out, you don't partake, etc., they'll be confused. The next couple of times they'll start to miss the drinking buddy that they had in you. These folks will either drift away into a passive non-supportive role where you'll just lose touch with them because your interests have diverted, or worse... Sometimes this group will actively try to sabotage your recovery. They'll pester you to come out for a drink, come out to the party, stay late after work for a shift beer. They may simply miss their drinking buddy, or it might be more sinister. You see, some people in this group, whether they understand it or not, will be threatened by your recovery. It's possible they also have a drug or alcohol or whatever problem, and watching you face yours down puts them one step closer to having to really examine their own habits. When I was in active addiction, I remember watching other people get sober and thinking, well, I'm nowhere near the drunk that that guy is. Spoilers, uh, I was. But I was not only not ready to face it, I didn't want to face it. I was threatened by those people who were getting sober around me. <laughs> luckily, quote, luckily for me, it wasn't very many of them. I was threatened by them, I was threatened by their success, and I hate to say it, but once you've identified the group of people who don't support you, it's best to cut ties. Especially if they're sabotaging your sobriety. The subtle or the overt sabotage, it won't stop. They may not be malicious, they may not have ulterior motives. They may just want their drinking buddy back, but it will not stop. You will lose people in sobriety. It's just going to happen. And that's the obvious segment of this group. You will find other people who don't support your recovery, and they'll come from a variety of directions with a variety of motivations. Some folks, like the casual drinkers who have no problem having just one beer, which I'm fucking jealous of, by the way, they won't get it. They won't understand why you're making such a big deal out of it. Some folks won't appreciate the magnitude of your decision to enter recovery. These are the people who, in an attempt to not arrive empty-handed, bring a bottle of wine to your dinner party. They're not paying attention. They don't get the severity. Some people, however, will be very conflicted about your recovery for personal reasons of their own. And this group is tricky. Some of the unsupportive people are folks that you've wronged during your active addiction, people you've hurt, employers you were not a great employee to, friends whose charity you lean too heavily on. Somewhere deep down, these people do not want you to succeed because they resent how you treated them in the past, whether they're aware of it or not, whether they do it on purpose or not. These people do not want you to have a successful recovery because they don't think you deserve it. While it will sound odd, having people around who do not support you can have its own sort of perverse importance. You get to succeed in spite of this group of people. The simple fact that they believe that you cannot do it can motivate you to continue on the path, if only to show them up. We, in the industry at least, all have enough of that competitive asshole streak in us. Use it. Tell me what I can't do and I'll show you what I will do, sort of thing. 
It's entirely up to you whether you keep members of this group of people in your life, but make no mistake. By not supporting your recovery, they've told you how much they value you as a person. And that value is zero. Be careful with this group. And then there's the third group of people you will meet in recovery. Spoilers, it's you. You will meet yourself during recovery. For many of you, myself included, for the first time. Regardless of why you originally got into your drug of choice, one of the reasons is undoubtedly escapism. You were escaping something. Could be anything from needing to wind down after a particularly grueling shift, like I said before, to escaping memories of childhood abuse. That part is your story. And examining that is your work to do, but rest assured, every time you engage in your active addiction, the goal was to get away from something. One of the hardest parts of recovery, especially early recovery, is that there's no longer a good way to get away from yourself. You're right there, like, all the fucking time. In early recovery, it's worth it to get to know yourself and really find out who you had been trying to escape from all that time. Again, it might be something totally obvious, some date and time you can point to and say that. That thing happened and I started using to get away from that. But it might be more subtle than that. It might be more of a general dissatisfaction with your life, with your situation, with yourself. For some people, you can only identify this kind of thing through therapy. Fine. Then go get a therapist. More power to you. For some, the answer is becoming religious or getting super into camping or fitness or baking. Just be careful that you're doing the work, having the hard conversations with yourself and identifying what led you into addiction. And you're not just finding a new one to fill that hole. Guys, it's tough. I say guys in a non-gendered way, which I know is not really a thing. Y'alls, it's tough. It's really tough and it can take a long time, like I said before. But it is worth it. Let's be clear. You can weed out the supportive folks who are just cheerleaders but aren't helping you out. You can get rid of the unsupportive folks who either want their drinking buddy back or ghoulishly want to watch you fail. But you can't cut ties with yourself, man. You're stuck with you, kind of forever. So this is your time. This is your time to figure out you so that you can hopefully eliminate that desire to escape. Because for me, at least, that's what drinking was. It was a fun thing I could do that allowed me to not think about all the problems I had in my life for a little while. Now... What I am doing instead is facing those problems, handling those problems, solving those problems. And guess what? Then they're not problems anymore. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, is the goal. Sobriety is not the goal. Remember I said before, you're not going to win. It's not going to be over. Sobriety was, for me at least, the first step toward handling my own problems. One at a time, in order until they were not problems anymore. And holy shit, guess what? The fewer problems I had, the less I wanted to drink. Fucking hallelujah. Who would have known, right? And so that's what I want to leave everybody with today. I am wrapping up this show because that's the thing I think I had to say this whole time. Once you have figured out why you use, why you use your drug of choice, why you used it, you can, sorry, jump into the bucket that has all your problems. You're not armed with the ability to handle the problems that you were running away from while you were in active addiction until you figure out why it is you made that choice to begin with. At some point, you did the same thing I did. You said, I could handle those problems, or I could have a drink and not think about it. And if you are curious about sobriety, if you are newly sober, if you've been sober for a thousand years, it is worth figuring out what the very first thing was that led you to use, instead of solving a problem, solve that thing <laughs> that led you to use that first time and from there you can start solving all the other problems simple as that simple very difficult and it's not the most fun work in the world 
It is good and necessary work. You will benefit from it every single day. Every problem you solve will feel like a miracle. And it's a good feeling. So that's what I want to leave you with. It is good and necessary work that you, I believe you can do. Because I did it and I'm kind of a piece of shit. And I believe in you. We're all kind of the same. And if I can do it, you can do it. So that's what I want to leave you all with. I am Chef Ben. I've been sober for 10 years. I kind of thought it would feel different than this. I guess I just have 10 more years of this exact same thing to look forward to. And then after that, I've got 10 more years after that. Who knows how long I'm going to live. Things are pretty good. And things are far better than they were when I was drinking. Because when I was drinking, I was actually miserable. I just didn't realize it. And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Once again, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, need support, you just need to chat. Uh, my Instagram is Chef Ben Randall. My email address is thisemptyglass at gmail.com. Like I said, I'm going to keep this episode up for about three weeks. I'm going to plop it over into the feed of my other show, which is called In the Weeds with Ben Randall. And then I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to get rid of this completely. And I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because it's working for me. I'm pulling for you. I believe you'll be successful. Good luck.